Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. for attending. This is a great opportunity to think about a very brief but uh, critically important period of U.S. history with uh, Operation Desert Shield being performed. Scott Stump's going to talk to us about uh, the road where we're at on this memorial, how we got here, and, uh, and, and what that period of history means. Uh, just as a note, we'll be streaming this. Um, when we get to a Q&A there toward the end, uh, just to identify yourself and uh, who you're affiliated with, and we'll be able to handle that. And then we're uh, cell phones. If uh, I've had to make sure I turn mine off. Uh, those things will ring at the most inappropriate times. Uh, my own personal experience or relationship to Desert Storm as a young captain finishing a military school, uh, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. And uh, for a young Marine, you thought, boy, i got to get in this fight because it's the only one that's going to happen in my lifetime, right? So if I'm not there, I'm not bringing home the war medals, my career is over. Um, History does tend to give you other opportunities later on, but as a young captain, you thought this is going to be the end all. So one of the three captains, um, I was one of those three. One of them was with an artillery unit, got sent straight over to Saudi Arabia, went in. One was sent up to an aviation supply office in Philadelphia, and I was sent to headquarters Marine Corps. So got the support from afar for a bit, and then right after the end of the uh, operation, went over to collect data and how things had happened. Uh, and it was just an amazing testament to the ability for the U.S. military to organize, to deploy, to put together coalitions, and to really fight a fight as you would want it to. And, uh, and I think Scott's going to talk to um, <clears throat> this uh, kind of moment in history and that it finally put to rest this malaise that existed post-Vietnam, you know, the old Vietnam syndrome. And uh, it was a, just a, a remarkable opportunity where you saw America come together in the big victory parade afterwards. Uh, it's just an amazing thing. So uh, we used to come on up and tell us about uh, the uh, memorial and how it got in. Thank you so much for your time. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. And I wanted to wish you all a happy Constitution Day. And I had a little bit of um, logistical uh, snafus involved to the uh, to the hurricane, but I got here a little bit uh, earlier yesterday, and it's it's great to be here with you. There is no way we can win. The enemy is battle-hardened after an eight-year war. We're just a bunch of volunteers. It's impossible for us to win, conduct and to win a war in the desert. I don't know if any of you, and I know some of you are a little bit younger, might not remember those uh, comments. I may be doing something wrong here. Do I, do I need to, to get the, the next slide? Do I need to... Some of you may not be old enough to remember this, so um, you, you've got to put things in perspective. This comment right here is one of the more optimistic that was made after Saddam Hussein had invaded 
uh, Kuwait. If you take a look at that, tens of thousands of, of casualties were predicted. Uh, there is still, and what you have to remember too is that there is still a lingering cloud of uncertainty and doubt as to our country's resolve, along with our, the proficiency and capabilities of our military at that point. We are less than 20 years removed from Vietnam at this point, uh, as Dakota had, had mentioned. So there was that lingering cloud of doubt. So what I want to do here this morning, real briefly, is I want to take you back to the beginning. I'm going to walk you through chronologically. And the good news is uh, it's not World War II, so it's not going to take that long. And then we'll get to where the, the current effort is at this point. But let's go back to day one. This is a scene in Kuwait City, August 2nd of 1990 when 100,000 Iraqi troops stormed the border of Kuwait and initiated a murderous and torturous seven-month occupation, which at the end of this left thousands of Kuwaitis dead. On August 7th, Operation Desert Shield was initiated. And the mission of Desert Shield was to ensure that Saudi Arabia and the entire Arabian Peninsula was shielded from further invasion. And the, the thing in history, if you look back, if they would have kept going, they would have had it. But for some reason, they stopped in Kuwait. So on August 7th, Desert Shield uh, initiated elements of the 82nd Airborne are the first who uh, deployed and who were, who were boots on the ground. And we kind of jokingly refer to them, and they, they even talked about this afterwards, they called them the speed bump, because even though they were there, all they would have done is slow down this, this force. Uh, they were just outmanned. They were out, uh, you know, too much equipment that was there on the ground. So uh, August 7th is when Desert Shield um, kicked into gear. Meanwhile, back here in Washington, D.C., President Bush, along with Secretary Baker and the Cabinet, got to work on assembling the largest coalition of countries ever assembled. Now, I want to point out on this list of countries, and by the way, this was 34 total countries from five continents, every kind of religion you can think of, five continents are represented here. And I wanted to point out that there are a couple of names there. If you take a look over on the right is one of them. But you see Syria and you see Egypt represented. Yeah, they were on our side. They actually had troops that were right next to ours. Okay, so very remarkable. And you just see how things can, can evolve and change over time. The other two names on there I want to point out that are very interesting, although they're not part of the official coalition, Germany and Japan were involved heavily in that they were financial contributors. And they donated billions with a B to this effort for a success, successful uh, you know, conclusion and mission. It was very, very important. And last but not least, I'd like to point out three countries on this list who um, it took a tremendous act of courage on all of their parts to be a part of this coalition. You saw what the predictions were, right? Okay, this wasn't predicted to be a stunning moment in, in American history. It was doom and gloom, tens of thousands of people dying. But you have three countries on there that are represented. Hungary, 
the Czech Republic, which up there it's called Czechoslovakia back at that point. I got that right. I didn't stumble too much. Uh, as well as Poland. This was the first act of independence that these countries took after coming out from under the decades of Soviet oppression that they were under. So it took a tremendous amount of courage uh, for them to join this coalition because it was very uncertain at that point. Uh, so very interesting menagerie of, of countries that we have put together here that were part of the coalition. The air war, okay? Many seem to erroneously refer to Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm as the 100-hour war. Have you all heard that? It's a 100-hour war, my gosh. Well, the problem is they, they forget the fact that we had 42 days of aerial bombardments Okay, that started on uh, here in the States. It was the evening of January 16th, uh, where I was and where all the troops were. It was the next day. It was the, the early morning of the 17th of January. And I remember it vividly. Um, I was being a good uh, infantryman. I was in a hole in the desert, freezing half to death, halfway falling asleep. And around 3.30 in the morning, the roar of... F-18s and F-16s came flying over my head. I literally, they were so low, I felt like I could reach up and touch them. And I want to preface this by saying, and, and Dakota, I think you could probably appreciate this, uh, being a military uh, person. Uh, you know, we were hoping beyond hope that there would be a peaceful resolution for this, okay? It wasn't all blood and guts, oorah, you know. We were really hoping that there could be a, a, a peaceful resolution. But at that point, those hopes were shattered. We knew that something big was happening. And I happened to, for some reason, I counted the, the aircraft that were flying over my head. I counted 93 of them, 93 uh, aircraft. About five hours later, uh, as the sun was coming up, and I looked off to the right at, at the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf, whatever you want to call it, and I noticed and I counted again, like little bees coming into the flight line. I counted 88 of them. I might have missed several because I was, you know, as you can imagine, the adrenaline was probably pumping a little more than normal. Uh, but that was my gauge of, of determining, wow, it looks like maybe we were fairly successful, okay? And again, it, it hit us all out of nowhere. Nobody really expected it to happen. So what was the impact? I want to point out the fact that there were over 100,000 sorties flown by the coalition during those 42 days. I mean, wrap your head around. I mean, that's just a phenomenal number of sorties. 100,000, 88,500 tons. Somebody that's good with math can probably uh, you know, double that and come up with a number, but that's, that's a lot of, lot of bombing on all of the strategic targets in uh, southern Iraq as well as Kuwait. So it was, a, it was a phenomenal display of the air power and air superiority that uh, you know, I, I, I feel fortunate to have been a, a witness firsthand to. Let's move on to the ground war, okay? And then this is what took 100 hours. And I'm going to give all the credit to the efficiency and effectiveness of the air campaign. Uh, the troops on the ground also, their training, it worked. Okay, all of the things we had to keep doing over and over again that we hated, it actually worked in, in this case. In fact, it was so effective that many of the troops were outrunning the supply lines. In other words, they got so far ahead and they took so much ground so rapidly that the supplies were behind. So they're running out of gasoline, they're running out of food, 
and they're running out of water. And, you know, water especially, you don't want to run out of that in a desert. But it was just a phenomenal display of competence uh, and professionalism in the way they conducted this, this campaign. I'd also like to point out, too, and you saw early uh, at the very beginning of the presentation, the little gold hook. This is also where the left hook military maneuver came into play. Is anybody familiar with, with the left hook? Haven't heard of left hook. Okay. The left hook, and, and it's, um, by the way, we have it on uh, all of our materials as part of our logo. It's an iconic symbol for the military maneuver that was executed in Operation Desert Storm. Now, the Iraqis uh, erroneously had the assumption that we were going to make an amphibious assault uh, in Kuwait, right in Kuwait. So all the defenses, the mines, they were all along the coast. And what this military maneuver allowed uh, to happen was they came from the west, plunged deep into Iraq, and then enveloped and looped around in the right hook around Kuwait, cut, effectively cutting off the forces there. Uh, a flanking maneuver is basically what, if you want to get fancy. Uh, they weren't looking for it. And I, I will tell you, folks, I have no doubt that this maneuver saved tens of thousands of lives. It absolutely did. Because, you know, taking a front-on uh, amphibious assault, it could have had some really uh, drastic consequences. But it was a brilliant maneuver. So anytime you see that little swirl, that's a left hook. That's representative of the, the, the left hook military maneuver that took place during Operation Desert Storm. I'd also be remiss if I didn't point out that the largest tank battle took place since World War II in Operation Desert Storm. Battle of 73 Easting. Huge, tremendously successful uh, you know, tank battle. 73 Easting also has the distinction of being the last major tank battle in the 20th century. Whoops, I'm missing a slide. Yeah, not well, I'm missing one, that's okay. Um, the mission, and then the next slide was gonna be uh, some jubilant Kuwaitis that were celebrating with the U.S. forces because they were just liberated. So I'm, I'm sorry, for some reason that one did not get into the mix, for whatever reason. Um, but I, I want to point out the fact that the mission has been convoluted. And I'm not sure if any of you all knew, you know, knew this before. Some of you did. But I, I just want to remind you that the mission was singular. And it was only one, one mission, and it always was one mission, and that was to liberate the people of Kuwait. Uh, I know it's been conflated since 9-11, and, and, you know, you should have gone in. You know, it was never to invade Iraq. It was never to depose Saddam Hussein. It was always to liberate the citizens of Kuwait. The other thing I want to point out, too, is, is that there was a, uh, an, a mandate by the, uh, the UN resolution that that was what we were limited you know, to, to, you know, to do. It was to liberate and expel the Iraqis from, from Kuwait. Um, I, I know, again, it's been conflated. It's kind of been mixed up. But I had a kind of an interesting experience a couple of years ago. It was at a small function that I had invited Secretary uh, of State James Baker to. And he was making some comments. And at the very end of his comments, he said, he wrapped up his comments by saying, you know, up until about 10 or 12 years ago, 
people would continually ask me, Jim, why didn't you all just go on in there and take care of business while you, while you had the chance? And he said, you know, the funny thing but is, nobody asked me that question anymore because unfortunately now they know the answer. Uh, again, the mission was all about, you know, liberating Kuwait. Uh, I believe that history will continue to show that that was the right decision to be made. Uh, a lot of people, again, we talked about the UN uh, mandate, and I showed you the, the pictures of all of these coalition countries. I think some of those folks might have been a little bit uh, upset at us, and it could have escalated into something unforeseen if we overstepped our bounds. We stuck to the mission, and that, that was what it was all about. Let's see if I can get this. Okay, here's, here's the, the shot. Here's something that most people forget about. Um, this is, uh, I know it looks like a photoshopped image, but this is actual footage uh, in Kuwait. Once uh, things were not looking good for the Iraqis, the retreating forces, sabotage and consequently lit on fire 737 individual oil wells. And I'll tell you from a firsthand experience, uh, it's a sunny day. Um, all of a sudden, it looks darker than midnight. You swear it's going to pour down rain. You're breathing. It's labored. It feels like somebody's standing on your chest. It was, it was the smoke from the oil wells. It was, it was environmental Armageddon. We, I, I remember hearing that you know, Kuwait would never re, you know, uh, recoup from this, that you know, the, the, the shoreline was going to be destroyed. Uh, and on top of this, they also dumped millions of gallons of oil into the, into the Gulf there. So, I mean, this was just unreal. Uh, interesting to point out. You think, okay, well, I mean, we probably fixed that pretty quick. The last one of these was actually capped and put out six months after the cessation of hostilities. So this, this was a long-term consequence, and it was horrible. I'm not going to get into any of the, the health effects. I know some of our veterans have had some issues, you know, through the years. I'm not an, uh, an MD, but uh, common sense would tell me, boy, it almost would make sense that some of this might be contributing to some of those factors. It was, it was a horrible, horrible uh, part of the experience. Some people, where they were located at when it rained, it actually rained down, and it was oil and water. I mean, it was just it was a mess. So people really tend to forget about this, this ecological aspect, uh, really ecological terrorism at, at, its, at its root. Okay, that's okay. A little, a little bit of a delay. Okay, the, the, next, uh, the next slide, we may be a little bit out of sequence. Okay, here's my slide, and we'll let you look at it real quick, and then I'll move on for the sake of brevity. Uh, but here are the scenes of the, the liberation. Okay, and, and, and the two guys in the middle um, meant to get after my guy who put together the, the slideshow. He didn't even put Americans in there. He's got, got uh, UK troops in there, you know, celebrating with the Kuwait. That's just not right. Uh, but but they, they had a right to do that, too. They, they were at, at the thick of it. But this is a scene, and, and again, you know, we forever changed the, uh, you know, the history of, of Kuwait and really that entire region. I mean, it was just a phenomenal um, you know, feeling to know that we really did the right thing. And then this is a, a very interesting slide. This is my last one. Then I won't have to mess around with, uh, with the, uh, uh, the slides anymore. Uh, right here in D.C., June 8th, 1991, the National Victory Day Parade. I've, I've heard rumors that there's talks about another parade trying to replicate this. We won't get into that. 
but this was on Constitution Avenue. And there's some verbiage that you see uh, underneath General Schwarzkopf, and that's right before the president returned his uh, salute. But this is a scene that was, was, took place across cities and small towns across this country. And I just want to tell you that as somebody that was involved in this, uh, we, we, didn't feel, we didn't feel comfortable with this attention. We didn't want this. And in fact, we caused such a fuss within our group that our CEO assembled us together in formation, and he gave us a dressing down. He said, this parade is not for you. It's for the people. You're going to do it. We, didn't, we really fought it. We didn't want to do it. We felt very uncomfortable with it. So we, go, we do the parade, little backwater town, and we're going down the main street, five deep on, on each side of, of, of the road. It was, it was unbelievable, of the street. Uh, and we get in front of a, review, a reviewing stand. And I can't remember a word that that commanding officer said until the very end. And he said, I dedicate this to the Vietnam veterans that never had it. And right then and there, we knew that this is something that had a lasting significance above and beyond what we had just accomplished in, in the Middle East. So moving on, um, I uh, want to just cover real briefly the, the motivation behind the memorial. As Dakota had mentioned, this was a brief but significant event in history. And that's one thing I just want to get across here as, as I close out my comments, is that this, you know, don't judge the impact on something by its duration, okay? Please don't make that mistake. Um, I started this eight years ago when I came to the startling realization that, that most Americans fell into one of two categories. Those that remember Desert Storm as that video game war that was over with before it started, nobody died. Or it was act one to what happened after 9-11. And it was you know, tied in there. And, of course, it, you know, they're both guilty of, of shared geography. But I really felt that it was, it was too important of an event uh, and the people that were involved were too important to just be relegated to a footnote in history. So took this upon, uh, upon us. And, you know, I've, I've had um, other people say, well, yeah, you know, Scott, but yeah, Desert Storm, it was, gosh, it was just, it was over with so quick. Like, that's a bad thing? I mean, it's like a boxer saying, well, gee whiz, I really regret knocking that guy out in 30 seconds. I should have gone all 15 rounds just to see what might happen. It might have gotten interesting. I mean, it's just, just crazy, crazy thinking. And obviously, no war is the best war. I think we can all agree with that. But if one has no other choice, I think that Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm could offer a template of how to conduct one uh, in, in the right fashion. You know, have a clearly defined objective, get in, get it done, and get out. And there's many reasons, again, for the memorial. I just want to highlight on, on three real briefly. Again, we liberated a country. And we changed the course of that country. And the way we liberated it was, was phenomenal, too. We talked about the 34-country coalition. It was, it was unbelievable. And it's our hope that this story through the memorial is going to be able to provide inspiration for future generations that, you know, hey, if you can, uh, you know, if you can get 34 countries together from five continents and do the right thing, my gosh. I mean, think about how remarkable that is, even in today's environment. You could get 34 senators into a room right now and couldn't get them to agree on anything, let alone actually accomplish something. It, it, it's phenomenal, the, the level of cooperation internationally that, that got this done. Secondly, Dakota touched uh, briefly on it. 
Desert Storm was a significant and important turning point in our country's history. And our collective conscience of our citizens finally realized what a tragic mistake it was to have treated our Vietnam folks the way that they were treated. That could never, ever happen again. And I'm happy to say that that legacy continues to live on to this day. Um, and it's not even just for those who are in uniform, it's for those that served. And my wife does it all the time. She drives me crazy. Every time she sees some guy with a hat or some lady, you know, thank you for your service. You know, that is a result of Operation Desert Storm. Okay, the word thank you for your service, that phrase did not exist in the American lexicon prior to that. So this lasting legacy continues on. Uh, and rightfully so. And I always like to tell people, you know, you didn't have people buying you a beer in the airport uh, in the 80s uh, or, or even in 1990, okay? It fundamentally changed and reestablished the relationship between the American public and the military and those who have served. And that is a wonderful thing, and I'm so glad to see that it continues. You know, people may not agree with what's going on politically, but they don't hold it against the, you know, the folks that are actually called into duty and, and are you know, placed in, in harm's way. And last but not least, we cannot forget that there are 383 Americans who made the ultimate sacrifice. That sacrifice is the same that's ever, you know, since the beginning of our country's founding. Uh, it's, it's no important, uh, no less important than any other time. Uh, I've got a cousin whose uh, name is on the Vietnam Wall over here on the mall. I've got another second cousin who is uh, buried at the Brittany Cemetery in France. Um, you know, my relatives are no more important than these 383, and we have to remember that service and that contribution to our country. It's very important. We also can't forget that there are 700,000 Americans who answered the call. And as we saw in the very first slide, the predictions were dire. Okay, this wasn't, hey, you're going to go over, you're going to be back home real quick. Okay, I remember I got the call. They said, have your stuff packed, have enough stuff packed for a year. You're not going to be home any, any sooner than a year, probably 18 months. Okay, that's what people were, uh, you know, prepared to do. So these 700,000 were prepared to make that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, you know, not as many as in, in the past or other things, uh, other situations, uh, you know, not as many were required to do that. But this willingness to serve is no less important. I remember myself before deploying, sitting down, and they had a little will in front of me. I don't know why I didn't have anything anyhow, you know, 20-year-old guy. And, um, but it was a little sheet that said that if I died, my family would get $50,000, my parents. And I'm thinking, that, oh, boy, they're lucky. Um, I'm not so lucky. Uh, but as I'm signing that, I thought to myself, you know, there's probably a good chance, you know, based on what they're saying, I'm probably not going to come back. Uh, probably a good chance. And I was okay with that, and everybody was, because that's what we signed up for, you know, to protect this country and to make those sacrifices. Uh, and, and I'm so glad to see that that service is still alive to, to, at this day, you know, to, at this time. And although remembering the fallen is of utmost importance with this memorial, it is not going to be a place of mourning. That's what's different about it. Because of these good aspects and the lasting legacy, that story is going to be told for future generations. And again, we hope that, you know, that the whole collaboration, uh, you know, the whole working together is going to be told through here. We hope that we can tell the story of, of this evolution or this turning point with the military and, and the public. There are some good things to talk about at this memorial, too, which is, which is a little bit different than some. 
Uh, now, the location, we got our, our um, legislative authorization back in 2014. Uh, in 2017, spring of 2017, we got Area 1 uh, approval, which means it, it, it can be located, I won't get into all of the mechanics, but uh, close to the other uh, important memorials or significant events in history. Uh, and then back on June 21st, we had a very, very big day where we finally were approved a location or a site for this. And the site is actually right across from the Institute of Peace at 23rd and Constitution. The Lincoln Memorial is kind of in the backdrop and over to the side a little bit. Uh, and then you also have the Vietnam Memorial that is just two notches over. And we had a number of Vietnam uh, veterans come and testify as to the importance of locating it close to um, you know, their memorial. Uh, and I think it is very fitting. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about the, um, uh, about the Vietnam connection is um, I've always uh, felt, I felt it from the very beginning, that the reason why this was such a rapid and resounding success is because all of our leaders were Vietnam veterans. And they weren't going to let what happened the first time around happen to us. I really do. I give them all the credit, along with the folks here in Washington, doing the right thing. But, it, it, you know, there is a tremendous connection uh, with Vietnam. We even, believe it or not, uh, had, had a, a good number of Vietnam veterans that had served in Operation Desert Storm, too. Those were our old guys. They were, like, in their 30s at, the, at that point. We're thinking, oh, my gosh, that's, that's really, really old. Uh, but it really wasn't. <laughs> So, you know, again, this, this memorial, we want to tell the story to, you know, to future generations. It isn't just for today. And I hope that this talk has, has maybe made you think a little bit differently about something that sometimes is discounted due to the duration. And again, never underestimate the impact of something based upon durations. And certainly, uh, you know, I've, I've even heard some people make some comments, too, about, well, hardly anybody died. You know, boy, I just, if it's one American you know, it, it's one too many as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, we're very, very happy to know that this story will be forever told in a prominent place here in our nation's capital. Uh, and I really appreciate your interest and your attention, and I'd be more than happy to answer any uh, questions or comments at this point, if there are any. Uh, would love to, and thank you. It's been a real honor to, to be here. Thank you. I'm going to amplify some of the comments that Scott made. Four and a half years, right, as a Marine infantryman, so yes. right there on the, uh, the front lines. Um, it, this was, uh, the, I guess, sometimes it was called the CNN War. It's where 24-7 uh, cable news coverage uh, was right there bringing a war home to America's uh, televisions on that constant reporting. Uh, we all watched it if you were back in the U.S. in our living rooms eating dinner because uh, the time difference was such That's that those right. things were going on. Uh, Lee Greenwood's song, Proud to be an American, uh, came out at that uh, time as well. So it was an amazing point of history. And I love the comment about duration not really being a metric by which we should uh, judge these, these sorts of things. Uh, under, I think it was Lieutenant General uh, Gus Pagonis uh, that led the logistical effort to get um, men and materiel uh, over there in such a short period of time, and then certainly under the uh, leadership of, um, of uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. So extraordinary thing. But I... If I could have you uh, describe a little bit more about kind of the ground-up nature of this thing. Uh, it was you and a couple of colleagues that actually uh, put this one together, and without a lot of heavyweights out of Hollywood or Congress, uh, a little bit of how this came to be as a memorial, and then we can turn it over for some questions. Sure. Well, again, as I mentioned, um, 
you know, this started, and I, I don't want to sound like Steve Jobs here, but I mean, it's, it's true. I was sitting in my basement on the eve of the, of the 20th anniversary when this hit me, and I said, you know, I, I don't know. I've never done this. I've, I've been to Washington, D.C., what, maybe once in my life, in eighth grade or something. You know, I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I just knew that I had to do something. So the first thing that I did is I reached out to two of the jokers that I served with and said, hey, I'm looking to do this memorial. What do you think? Yeah, okay. Well, I need to talk to you two because I need to have a secretary and a treasurer to open up the 501c3. So, you know, that's, and that, to, that, to this day, that's why we're, we're domiciled as a 501c3 in the state of Arkansas is because the guy who volunteered to be the treasurer uh, lives there. But, uh, you know, Dakota, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I've got to brag on the people that have been involved in this. You know, we don't have uh, you know, a lot of heavyweight people on the board. Um, I, I had a lot of learning. I had my former general, General Boomer, tell me we were sitting down to lunch early in this, and he said, you know, Scott, you got to get people in there that have really deep pockets that can donate themselves and can be on your board and you have all these connections. And it just, it just, you know, for whatever reason, didn't happen. One other thing is, in fairness, you know, all of our generals, they're typically, uh, if they're not 80, they're right there. And some of them are beyond that. And you can't expect them to have the energy levels or the, you know, the, the wherewithal to jump in with both feet with something, you know, like this. And I, I told, you know, General Boomer, I said, hey, I understand. It's our turn. We'll carry, we'll carry the water. But this is really a grassroots uh, effort. We don't have any, any brand names. And I think it just goes to show you, and maybe some of you younger folks, you're just a couple of years younger than me, uh, maybe it will show you that um, you, you can do things in, in a different way. You can do it unconventionally. Uh, you don't have to do it the way it's always been done. Uh, one of the other things that we, we did, we're all volunteers, okay? I, I get a mod, modest stipend to kind of offset some of my uh, cost. Uh, ask my wife, it's very modest. Um, but, um, you know, this, this is truly, you know, in the, you know, coming from the heart. You know, there is no ulterior motive. And I keep having people ask me, well, well, what's in it for you, Scott? You know, the only thing that's in it for me is knowing that the people and this story is not going to be forgotten for future generations. That's what, you know, it excites me knowing that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, that that memorial is going to be there to tell an important story that fits in chronologically with the rest of the important and significant things in our country's history. So it really is kind of a remarkable story that, you know, we don't have the, you know, the Hollywood, uh, you know, spokesman and all of this stuff. It's just been really a grassroots effort. And, you know, the people, we've got a, a wonderful um, uh, lady who does the um, social media for us. I've learned that I'm, I'm, I'm not even on Facebook myself. And I just heard it uh, earlier. They said, well, Facebook is for old people. I said, well, no wonder why I'm not on. I'm not old. Uh, but, you know, we, we have not, uh, you know, that, that has just grown organically with this. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, we know that uh, at a certain point it's going to have to, you know, step up in terms of, of, of a donor uh, scenario. But, you know, the other thing I didn't tell you is that this is not a long-term project uh, at this point. Well, it is to me. Eight years has been an eternity to me. But we are going to be done with this in 2021. Does anybody know what's significant about 2021? I, I don't even like admitting this, but it's the 30th anniversary, and I'm only 32, so how could that, you know, the math is not working here. But it's going to be the 30th anniversary, so Veterans Day of 2021 is when we want to have this complete. So, you know, we're not, and people are always in, in Washington particularly say, well, yeah, where's your office? Well, we don't have one. Where's your office going to be once it's built? 
we don't need one. I mean, you know, it's just it's it, it, different mindset. We just we're so singularly focused. And I and I hate to be cliche here, but and it may sound cutesy, but I, I really I live this. I tell people we want to be the desert storm of memorials. We want to get in. We want to get it done. And we want to get out. And I don't care if they call this a 100-hour memorial. I don't care. I'll, we'll know better. <laughs> so, but I, I, you know, open it up. Any questions, uh, you know, comments? If anybody has anything, I'd, you know, be happy to answer. Can you hear me? I'm James Martone, News Arabia. But uh, so thank you very much for this. I was a young reporter for CNN when, in, in the, during, you know, when the, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and so I remember that very well. And so, my what what is the f cost are you looking at in terms of this memorial? I mean, how much is it going to cost? And have has Kuwait been approached in terms of donating? I, it, would that even be legal? I'm not sure, but I mean seeing as we liberated them, have they been approached in terms of financing in some way the cost of this memorial? Those are great questions. And, and you know, the, the problem is I've been asked for the last eight years two consistent questions. Gosh, Scott, what's it going to look like? Where is it going to be? And I haven't really been able to answer that question, at least where it's going to be until, you know, just back here in June. Um, but um, we actually, until you have a site, it's very hard to determine the costs, okay? So here recently what we did is that we hired a professional cost estimate. You know, they have people out there that can do this, all of the hard and the soft costs. Um, we were uh, hypothetically kind of guesstimating, I guess, $25 million is what our original number was. Uh, the thing I didn't take into consideration with that number is you have to have 110% of the budget in the bank before you can break ground. The 10% is for any overages or, you know, all of that type of stuff. I've heard that some, some constructions, uh, you know, projects that does happen every once in a while, you know, like most of them. Uh, but when we had the estimator, uh, we, were, uh, we, were, we were pleasantly surprised that with all hard and soft cost materials and everything, uh, came up with about, it was just shy of $34 million is what it was. Now, I know it sounds like a lot, but you, you would be surprised. I mean, all of the things. And, and again, I think, you know, Dakota, you'd mentioned the, the grassroots nature of, the, of this. It's even more remarkable when, if I could show you some invoices that we've had to pay just to get where we are up to now. And I'm the guy that's waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering, you know, are we gonna, you know is, is that fish fry going to give us enough money to pay the, you know, the architect? But, you know, it, it really... Um, it, it's really uh, you know phenomenal. So we're really happy with with that number. It's very modest. It's very reasonable. If you take a look at some of the more recent memorials, I think the uh, the disabled veterans for life uh, was somewhere like eighty six million dollars. I mean you know so we're we're proposing something that is uh, our our, mo our mantra has kind of been profound simplicity. We're delivering a profound message. We're going to do it in a simplistic way. It's not going to be over the top. It's not World War II. We, we know that. We realize that. And we're not trying to be. So we're being very diligent. The other advantage to a grassroots organization, as you probably can appreciate, is that we're pretty doggone tight with what we spend. We look at every item, and, and we respect if somebody donates $10, we treat it with the same respect as if somebody does $10 million. Uh, and in regards, sir, to your question about uh, Kuwait, um, I have nothing but the uh, of utmost respect for, you know, for Kuwait, uh, for Ambassador al-Sabah. They're wonderful people at the embassy. 
Uh, we have discussed this. Uh, obviously, you know, this is about the liberation of their country. They're very interested in it. Uh, and we have discussed that. Uh, and I think you can probably appreciate that when you're dealing with uh, governments, we don't hold the um, we don't hold the monopoly on bureaucracy. But um, I, um, you know, they have been a tremendous help uh, even thus far. I mean, even just from a non-financial, just being able to work with them uh, and to be able to you know, get their input too to a certain point. We like to have some of their input, especially when we talk about some of the uh, aspects of the liberation within in the memorial. So. Uh, I hope that answers your question sufficiently. We, we, we have, yes, sir, we have. We, we approach them, and, and yes, sir, that, that's in, in process. And, and, and again, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of any other country or, or my own even for that matter. I'm not you know, qualified to do that. But yes, we have approached them and have discussed that. Yes, sir. Uh, I also would mention, in keeping with that question, uh, I do have to um, recognize that um, before I got here this morning, I was actually at the Embassy of Hungary, and they, of course, were one of our coalition partners. They are the first coalition donor. So, um, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm just very, very honored to be working with them. It's a wonderful, uh, you know, symbolic, um, you know, overture. They're the first one. Somebody's got to be the first one in the water, and it was, it was the government of Hungary and all their people at, at the embassy here, wonderful folks to work with. So, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jim Phillips here at Heritage. Uh, and I remember that during the, the controversy over the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, there was a lot of back and forth in Congress. And unfortunately, uh, you know, very little bipartisanship back then. And how have you managed to avoid that? And do you have a, a design in mind for this? Or it w and will it also uh, recognize the, you know, the allied uh, sacrifices? Great questions. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Um, you, you know, I, you're looking at the legislative guy, and I'm just saying that just because you know it's a grassroots. I, um, I, I worked tireless, tirelessly. Uh, walking those halls, they're marble floors, and by the way, when you're doing that eight hours a day, it does it does bother your back uh, and your hips and everything else. So, you know, we basically address this obviously from a grassroots standpoint. We didn't have a media blitz through social media. This is face to face. You know, Congressman so and so, would you be willing to, uh, you know, co-sponsor this? Um, I, I got very fortunate early on in that I was introduced. Uh, to a congressman who now finds himself in a pretty powerful position here in, in D.C., uh, the VA uh, committee, uh, Congressman Phil Rowe from Tennessee's 1st District. Uh, the friend of mine who introduced him, ironically, is a, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Miller from Hendersonville, North Carolina, who is uh, the found, one of the founders of Honor Flight, where they fly the WW2 in Korea. So, Jeff, I, you know, I had a congressman in my district at the time I really didn't want to deal with, and I said, you know, who, who can I deal? And he said, you got to meet Phil Rose. So, you know, so Phil, uh, I, I really give him the credit for really kind of greasing the skids behind the, you know, the scenes. But it took a lot of just, you know, shoe leather going into the offices. Here's what we're doing. Would you be willing to co-sponsor it? And, yeah, there really wasn't any, any uh, controversy. On May 28th of 2014, I'll never forget it, um, we went into that, the House of Representatives and – we, um, you know, it was, uh, it was up for a vote. And, of course, you're kind of nervous, and they have this big scoreboard up there. And the moment that I knew that we probably were in good shape 
is when I saw with my very own eyes, I, I was watching Nancy Pelosi, and I looked at her, and I saw her take her finger, and she pushed the green button. I said, I think we got this. <laughs> uh, so that, that, <laughs> that was kind of the turning point. But yes, sir, I mean, we have somehow, uh, it hasn't been controversial. I think people, uh, you know, realize that there really isn't a whole lot, um, you know, to stir up, you know, uh, from a controversial nature. I mean, if, if you know, assembling a, a coalition of countries and going and liberating, I mean, I, I can't see where, but again, I mean, I'm not a politician. I'm sure there is some way that somebody could have done that, but we, we didn't, uh, you know, didn't experience that. I'd also like to point out the fact that on the Senate side, we had a bipartisan effort. Uh, Senator John Bozeman from Arkansas was the, the original sponsor, and Joe Donnelly from Indiana, uh, one Democrat, one Republican, were on that, and they drove that through. And both of those guys have been, been phenomenal and been very helpful uh, navigating that. As to the design, we are actually in the design approval phase at this point, and we are looking to get back in front of the Commission of Fine Arts on November, I think it's November 15th, uh, for uh, a hearing and see, see kind of where we are with the preliminary, preliminary design uh, approval. I will say that the original design that we hope to keep at least some iteration of does resemble the left hook. Everybody can see that. So we're really hoping that that was really um, something that came back, uh, you know, from the veterans. And we kind of did this a little different. Again, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And we, we came into this and had an architecture firm that was referred to me from AIA here in Washington. And I call up, I said, look, I'm, I'm wanting to build a memorial in Washington. And they didn't hang up on me. So I think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape here. And they referred me to a, 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 an architecture firm by the name of CSO Architects in Indianapolis, Indiana. Know him from Adam, called him up, said what I was going to do, and he said, well, we'll talk to the partners, we'll get back to him. I'm like, no, no, you won't. You're not going to call him. And about a week later, they said, we talked about it, we believe in it, this is important, and by the way, we're going to do a pro bono. And I'm, so four and a half years, these folks did a pro bono. So, you know, we, we and, and what they did is to get to the point of, of what we wanted to tell the story of, they basically approached veterans and family members and, and the public at large to get some feedback. What are the most, what are the, like the five top things that should be commemorated and what stories should be told through the memorial? So we feel that that's better than any design competition. You have somebody that has no vested interest, there's really no passion, there isn't, it's just more of a clinical and, and sterile type of, of, of a situation. Here you get the feelings of people that really experience this and then you, you, you kind of boil it down to those top four or five um, aspects. And, 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 and final, uh, the, the conclusion of what uh, this design process, we're hoping that sometime within the next, within the year, we'll be done with that and then you can move on to the actual groundbreaking and so forth. Uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of a, 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 a protracted process as, as is much uh, in this town I've learned. Yes, sir. Hello, Will Thatcher. I'm an intern at the Heritage Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about any fundraising events you might be having in the future and about how ordinary people might be able to contribute to this project? Wow, this is great. Is he a plant? Did somebody from our... <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Thank you. You know, we have a multitude of events going on at any given time. A lot of them, some are, are grassroots, uh, you know, VFW Post. You know, VFW is a tremendous supporter. They donated $500,000 uh, you know, it's been four years ago, 
uh, you know, so they were very early in supporting this. So we have a lot of people that are doing, uh, we even have people that are doing Facebook fundraisers, believe it or not. So I mean, you know, really the sky is a limit at, on the grassroots um, level. Now we also recognize that uh, there's only so many fish you can fry and cookies you can sell, and that's probably not gonna build a, a memorial. We, we recognize that. Uh, so we do have a, a series of, of, of um, bigger events. One that we have coming up on October 30th that we're, we're pretty excited about is that a couple of our guys, the architect from Indianapolis, uh, they're in the airport here, Reagan Airport. They run into the governor of Indiana. Hey, here's what we're doing. And he says, oh, well, you need to have a fundraiser at, at my mansion or my residence. We're the, so we're actually going to have a fundraiser at the Indiana governor's mansion. Uh, on October 30th, and we're hoping that that'll be kind of the kickoff of this this next leg, kind of taking it up a, a notch or two, so we can really raise those substantial funds—the hundreds of thousands and the millions that we need—because we recognize that you know tens of thousands are only going to get you so far. We've got to get over the hump. Uh, and again, going back to our timeline, we've got a pretty aggressive timeline, so we've got to really make it happen so that we can actually break ground in a timely manner to keep us. Uh, on track for that 30th anniversary, but uh, and and again, in answer to your question, I mean, I mean, really, the, the sky is the limit. Uh, we have a very active Facebook page. Uh, people can donate right on the website. It's just real simple. You can you can Google it, National Desert Storm Memorial, or you can do NDSWM uh, is the acronym. Uh, and again, we have a we have a fabulous Facebook page. It's dynamic. There's stuff on there every day and updating and and so forth. So we would love for you to. Uh, if you'd be inclined to help spread the word so we can get this done. Thank you. That's a great question. Hi, I'm Dr. Gonzalez. I'm from Venice, Florida. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I was uh, there with you guys. Um, I, you guys finished so fast that I got there a little late. Um, I remember being at um, Portsmouth Naval Hospital while we were training. And uh, we evacuated all our staff. We pretty much shut down the hospital. And a few months later, I was rolling around on an aircraft carrier supporting our guys as they led the air missions then into Yugoslavia and later on in Somalia. But listen, you, you said a very important, and thank you for your service, number one. And number two, congratulations on this, on this just sheer will project that you have undertaken. You said something that is unrelated kind of uh, to your uh, to the topic at hand of your memorial, but it, it's also integral, and that is that feeling that you had when you signed the will, when you were signing that will and you felt that it was okay. And I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that feeling, that acceptance of the possibility that you weren't going to go come home, and whether that linked you in any way to the guys in Normandy or Iwo Jima or anywhere else where Americans engaged in battle knowing that they were probably uh, not going to come back home. Thank you for your service, Doctor, uh, and for what you did. And and uh, no offense, but I'm glad that you got there too late. That's a good thing because that means that your services weren't required at the level that you anticipated. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that question. And you know, again, it's it's the mindset, and I think it really is. It's the same feeling that those guys had on those Higgins boats as the the flap dropped, you know, on D-Day. You know, it's, it's just that quiet assurance and that acceptance that, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Um, however, we do have a, a, a lot of control in terms of what happens. You know, we felt very trained. 
you know, we basically went to um, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina in December, and we, we conducted desert training. You have to have a little bit of an imagination to do tr uh, desert training in Camp Lejeune <laughs> in December. Uh, but, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just, it is, it's that same mindset. You know, this is what I signed up for. I knew that it would, would happen. I knew that, you know, we drew inspiration from those that went before us. We, we really did. And we knew that, uh, you know, we felt the same emotions that they did, and they were willing to uh, answer that call. Um, you know, some people have said, um, I've heard it, um, you know, make some comments. Well, it was all about oil. Well, really, I don't. I never saw my oil prices go down. I don't know about anybody else. It wasn't about oil, and it was even one of the, one of the um, privates, PFCs. He was quoted in a local paper upon deploying. They had this little dog and pony show and a little send off and a little pizza party and this parade in a park or whatever, passing review. And they interviewed this private. Okay, this guy is just. You know, just some backwoods guy, you know, not, not the smartest in the world, but he said something really profound. They said, well, do you think this is about oil? He said, well, no, I think it's about helping some people in Kuwait. That guy got it, you know, un uneducated. And I think when you know what your job is and you know that you're doing something that really is, you know, right and I think it's virtuous, uh, and, uh, you know, you're just helping out your fellow man. I think you draw some inspiration, even though you might not identify that in your thought patterns as a 20-some-year-old. As a that's driving a lot of that. It, it's, that it's that purpose that's higher than, than yourself. Uh, and, again, it's what you signed up for. It's what you trained for. And, and we weren't warmongers. I mean, you get a few of these John Wayne types. I've seen a few of those that they're talking about how tough they are. And then, and then there's a Scud missile coming in and, and – I won't even go into details, but yeah, you know, the ones that talk are usually ones that, that, that don't have, don't, don't pack the gear, as we said, in, in the Marine Corps. Uh, but I, I really think that that goes into, into the whole thought pattern. We felt like this was an important thing. Uh, you know, you know the, the mission was right. We were helping out our fellow man. And I think when you have that coupled with your commitment of why you're there to begin with, and I'll tell you, Doctor, I mean, I, I, I knew some people, this was after the fact, that basically staged some accidents prior to deployment to get out of it. I mean, they were scared out of their wits, and he came back, and it was so-and-so. They were faking. They staged this accident. They fell off of a second-story thing. I wouldn't want to be that guy because how can I let my guys go, and I'm back here safe, and they're in, in harm's way? I think a lot of that, you know, I think you draw a lot of strength, too, from the people that you're around. Uh, and courage, let's face it. I mean, you're, you're looking to your right, you're looking to your left, and, and you're, you're a family at that point. And, and that's something that I think that if you've never served in the military, uh, is it's, it's hard to grasp is that, that relationship that we have with those people because not only are you buddies and pals, but you've got to rely on them. You have to know that they're looking out for you as much as they're looking out for themselves. And you just don't see that. You know, very often. But yes, it, that was absolutely a play. And again, Doctor, I think this, this whole thing, what mo has even motivated me, a source of motivation, is the fact why I'm doing this, and every day of my life truly has changed. I, I know it sounds cliche or kind of corny, but every day of my life I do feel like it's a gift because I felt like I could have been one of those 383. And for some reason I wasn't. Uh, and for some reason it wasn't tens of thousands. You know, we, we put it together, it was executed. Uh, you know, so well, but at the end of the day, I feel very fortunate to, ha to have had 27 extra years of life that, you know, that, that a good number of people never had. And I think, I, I don't think you can go through that, even something as brief as it was, 
and not have it fundamentally change you. It's the intensity of the experience, not necessarily the, you know, the duration. So uh, I hope that that answers your question. Uh, and again, thank you for you know, your willingness to serve there because uh, you know, it was a great scene. I, I saw a few of these uh, little hospital tents uh, and they didn't have anything to do at, at the end, like in Bahrain. And, and it, it was great to know that, uh, you know, that they were there. And, and I wanted to just say too, I hope that you weren't on the Tripoli uh, because that was one that hit the mine and was in dry dock, and it had a hole that you could drive like 10 semis through, and they're huge. But okay, okay. Well, thank you for your service and, and for pointing out that, that psychological aspect because it really does drive everything. And you know, I'll close by saying that um, I've talked with thousands of, of fellow veterans, you know, over the last eight years. And, you know, most of them, it's, it's the same common theme. They'll say, you know, I'm nothing special. I'm just trying to feed my family. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to, you know, to do this and that. I'm just your average Joe. But that was the one time in my life where I really felt like I was part of something that was bigger than me, that I was important because I was a part of this, this team. And that's something that, you know, we can never forget. You can't ever underestimate the power when you have that collective group of people that are on the same page headed in the right direction with that mission. And to code again, I think that's been the reason for our success because we are all on the same page going to the, to the same target. Thank you. Yeah.